we were able to just cycle joyfully together and have conversations and have a similar pace and that really helped. When we keep allowing ourselves to see these devices on the road as practical solutions, it normalizes them as solutions. It allows us to be able to, across the scan of communities, showcase these as dignified practical options. And as long as we can do that, we have a way forward. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. I'm John Simmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your grateful host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. If you're brand new to the Active Towns podcast, welcome. We have 52 full-length episodes as well as short intro and wrap-up episodes from season one, waiting for you to go back and discover. In this episode, our first of 2021 and our second season, we welcome Jamie Stucklis and Darnell Harris from the province of Ontario, Canada for a discussion about the empowering potential of the electric assist bicycles and cargo bikes. Jamie, an advocate and policy wonk located in the city of Hamilton, has become increasingly interested in and working on the needed legislative updates with regards to e-bikes and other electric mobility devices. While Darnell is the executive director of Our Greenway, an NGO working to create a more resilient and equitable Northwest Toronto, a far-flung industrial exurb of the city of Toronto. But before we dive into that discussion, please allow me a moment to mention that this episode is once again being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you all so very much for your amazing support. To learn how you too can help support me and my efforts to produce this content, please head over to the Active Towns website at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G, and simply click on the donate link in the top right corner of the page. As always, I've included the link in the show notes. One last thing before we get started with season two. If you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please subscribe to and rate it on your preferred podcast listening platform. Okay, let's get this conversation with Jamie and Darnell Rowling. Jamie and Darnell, it's so wonderful to connect with you here on the Active Towns podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you both very much for agreeing to chat with me today about your experience and reflections and really the potential of electric assist bicycles. To get us started, why don't you please share with the audience just a little bit about yourself, including how you got interested and involved with active mobility issues. Uh, Jamie, why don't you start us off? Thanks, John. So yeah, um, I'm uh, I'm a policy advocate and a transportational transportation professional based in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Um, Hamilton is a mid-sized Canadian city uh, with just over half a million people, and uh, we're really known for Hamilton's steel industry. Uh, we're located on the coast of Lake Ontario, just between Toronto and Niagara Falls. If listeners are familiar with both of those locations. 
And um, I've had the opportunity now to work in the active transportation sector for over a decade, running school travel planning projects, uh, coordinating events like Bike Month and Open Streets. And for the past six years, I was the executive director of a provincial cycling advocacy organization called the Share the Road Cycling Coalition. So this summer, I actually uh, left Share the Road to become an independent consultant and uh, do some freelance writing and also collaborate with nonprofits on policy work in the active mobility and sustainability space. And, um, you know, I've really been enjoying that shift after years of being, uh, you know, the busy executive director with too much to do and not enough capacity. It's been nice to... Um, and really rewarding to be able to provide some of that outside support to nonprofits. And so I've, I've really had a long time interest in uh, walking and cycling. And uh, I'd say it started when I was uh, young. I was really fortunate to be able to walk and bike to school as a kid. And even though I stopped cycling for most of my teenage years, I uh, rediscovered my love of biking on an impromptu two-day cycling trip between Kingston and Ottawa when I was studying geography at university. And it was really that trip that prompted me to want to find more ways to make it safer and easier for more people to ride bikes. And uh, it led me to pursue a master's thesis focused on cycling safety. And I think, you know, it was really those studies in that academic uh, pursuit that uh, made me fortunate enough to find a job working in the active transportation space. And that's been the last 10 years. Fantastic. Darnell. Thank you very much. So I am the ED of our Greenway. And I'm just up the road from Jamie in Toronto, Ontario. My major focus over the last five years has been working with Northwest Toronto. For those who are unfamiliar, it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful area of, of Toronto. However, it's a mix of industrial BIAs as well as the home for many immigrants racialized people as well. In terms of my overall work and background, so I did my master's at York University, my master's in urban planning. My focus there was inclusive public engagement as a way of building community identity and social change. And specifically how I learned about cargo cycles and electric cargo cycles and really started to build that here in Toronto was that I was trying to investigate how to make cycling both widely used and socially acceptable in this inner suburban area. So my initial project involved a comparative analysis of six global cities, which had undertaken extensive and equitable low carbon mobility projects. And then moving forward from there, today are trying to explore cycle logistics and the regulations and designs needed to make it a feasible, practical, and cost-effective option across Canada and Mexico. Currently, as the ED of our Greenway, I am creating an electric cargo bike library in Northwest Toronto that will also be available to businesses and communities in other parts of, in other parts of the city that will showcase how people and goods, especially heavy goods, can be moved through cargo cycle. Fantastic. So, Jamie, I'm going to come back to you as a, as a follow-up. One of the things that you said in there that was interesting uh, and, and I think is a common theme for, for many 
people is that, especially when they experience being able to walk and bike to school and to work and to, or, or into uh, functions, you know, meet their daily needs as children earlier in life. But then as they get a little bit older, the bike just starts, stops being, you know, an, uh, a mode uh, that, you know, for active mobility. Was that sort of like around your, your early teen years and, and, and what happened? Did you start bumming rides and then start driving or, you know, what was, what was sort of that, that factor that, that led you to stop biking as much? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And, um, you know, when I was growing up, I was uh, living in the suburbs of uh, Ottawa, which is uh, the nation's capital here in Canada. And, you know, I lived close enough to all of my schools to be within the walk zone, which was great. And, you know, as I mentioned, I started out biking. Um, but yeah, as I became a teenager, I started leaning more towards walking and less towards biking. I can't necessarily say that there was, you know, one concrete reason, but I think two that I really remember. One, bikes were getting stolen outside of our high school because we just had those racks that were really just pieces of metal on the ground. And if you locked your wheel to it, you know, your wheel would be remaining, but your bike might be gone. So for a while, I started rollerblading to school um, because I could put rollerblades in my locker. So I made that switch. And another thing that I remember that I feel a little silly about now was just kind of uh, the whole wearing a helmet piece. I think I, you know, there were some times where I thought, you know, I don't really want to wear a helmet, but it's required and I don't want to bike without a helmet. And I'm sure the same rules probably applied to rollerblading, but I didn't really process that. So I really just switched to like rollerblading and walking. So it wasn't necessarily a switch to, you know, taking the bus or, or riding a car. It was more so just a hesitancy around various aspects of cycling that, you know, looking back maybe could have been more easily addressed, but uh, I was really lucky that I had those other their options of walking and rollerblading anyways. Fantastic. That's great. Yeah. And so you both have mentioned uh, the suburban <laughs> word in the suburban context. So w- what I think is going to end up happening is I have, as I have each of you talk a little bit about the uh, recent articles, the recent posts that you have published, I have a feeling that that's going to be part of the relevance and part of the context that comes out. So, Darnell, your post was co-authored with uh, Sam Starr, I believe, and it was more of a higher level piece, whereas, Jamie, yours was more of a personal account of, of your experience. So, Darnell, let's start with you. What prompted y'all to, to address this topic? Sure. So, one of the major reasons we're focusing on electric assist mobility is just Fundamentally, the suburbs were designed and built to be used by mechanized, and you would have you'd also have your housing far away from commercial uses as well. You might have your affordable housing, usually in towers along arterial roads, and you will also have community uses sort of tucked away in various places. What that creates is a need for electric mobility and it creates a need to be able to move goods and people. And, you know, many people in, 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 in my view, mischaracterize the, shall we say, shall we say suburban cycling opposition. 
it's very hard for a suburban family or, you know, a suburban business person to look at a two-wheeled bike with no cargo capacity and no electric assist and go, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. They're not against exercise. It just, it just, it's not a daily practical tool. And so that's not something they're going to support. Meanwhile, what we're trying to do with the Cargo Cycle Library and our efforts to harmonize the regulatory sphere in Canada is to show people what is possible. So right now we have a number of different cargo cycles and we're growing that collection that are all from a smaller two-wheeler that can still you know, hold a couple hundred pounds up to three-wheelers and we're also looking at four-wheelers as well that can hold goods, hold people and showcase how you can feasibly move um, without, without a car or a truck. And having those lower cost mobility options that are so practical will be really transformational for people across Northwest Toronto and in other suburbs as well. Thank you, Darnell. Um, what would you say the average distance is for a, a trip you know, in that northern Toronto suburban context? I would say the average trip distance is usually around five to seven kilometers. Darnell, how do people interact with uh, the library? So currently we are setting up a number of programs we are going to be launching a Cycling Without Age chapter. Cycling Without Age is a program out of Denmark, and we will soon be having um, four trishaws and hopefully growing from there. That will allow us to work specifically with seniors and ask them if they would like to come and feel the wind in their hair um, within, within Northwest Toronto. You know, I'll, I'll say one thing about that. We have a hydro corridor, as, as I mentioned, where we're seeking to offer most of these rides. Now, this hydro corridor is not maintained in winter. Um, I can't necessarily say the arterial roads are much better, but there is a bike lane, a painted one on Finch. And, you know, in, in some of my conversations with folks at the city, I said to them, you know, shouldn't we, you know, I told them, hey, I'd, I'd like to run this bike on Finch occasionally. And they were extremely concerned about that. You know, and certainly that made my team wonder, what's the concern? Are you suggesting that we have unsafe infrastructure on our on our arterial roads in Northwest Toronto? You know, but it, it brings back it brings back a real concern. But if city staff are concerned about me running a cargo cycle. Um, on a certain road in, in the city of Toronto, then perhaps that's a sign that we need to be rethinking um, the quality of our infrastructure so that people of all ages and abilities can use it. In terms of the other cargo cycles in our library, we have, we have one or two smaller family ones as well that people are welcome to try. We are going to be having two smaller ones specifically for seniors they're called the Nehola Lows that we're really excited about. There are a couple of tricycles, but the idea is that seniors can borrow them, try them to sort of step through. And then we have our commercial line um, where we have a couple of cargo bikes that people can borrow as well for commercial purposes. 
Fantastic. That's great. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, Cycling Without Age. I'll be sure to include uh, a link in the show notes to that wonderful program. We actually do have a, a few of uh, the trike shaws uh, here in the Austin area and an active Cycling Without Age chapter. So, Jamie, your post was a little bit more of a personal account. Why don't you tell us about that post? Yeah, no, thanks for for highlighting that. You know, I've really been prompted to be looking more at e-bikes over the last couple of years because, uh, you know, in Canada and in Ontario, governments are looking at updating the way that we define and regulate e-bikes. So I was having lots of meetings about e-bikes, doing research and, you know, helping to facilitate conversations about policies on e-bikes. And I really realized that I didn't actually have e-bike riding experience. Um, and so it's been interesting. I'm glad that Darnell is on the call today because, um, you know, he's been such a big part of my e-bike journey. Uh, my first two e-bike rides were with Darnell and uh, both of them were actually at conferences. The first one was like a short ride at the National Bike Summit in Ottawa, uh, just testing out an e-bike on some pathways behind the conference. And the second one was slightly longer. We got to explore Indianapolis on their electric bike share when we were at the North American Bike Share Conference. And so those were both really great opportunities, but, um, you know, they were also shorter trips on e-bikes that, uh, you know, didn't allow me to test out maybe the full power of an e-bike in the way that I can here in Hamilton. Um, so an interesting feature of Hamilton is that uh, we have something called the Niagara Escarpment running through our community. And it's quite a steep hill. And, uh, you know, we do refer refer to it as the mountain. And I'm sure that anybody who lives in a community with actual mountains would laugh at us for referring to it as the mountain, but it is, you know, a significant incline and it really does represent sometimes this divide between the lower and upper city of the community. So I had tried riding up the escarpment a couple of times. I'm not a big fan of cycling up hills and, you know, I struggled on multiple occasions to get up the escarpment and you know, one time really stands out in my memory. I was cycling and, you know, pushing so hard and and a person on a bike just flew right past me. And I thought, what am I doing wrong? And she was generous enough to, you know, yell back at me and say, don't worry, I'm on an e-bike. And, you know, I really appreciated that context, but also, you know, wondering why aren't I on an e-bike? And, you know, I, I was able to find a place in Hamilton that rents e-bikes by the day. And uh, I was able to do a 50 kilometer loop around Hamilton on what we call the Waterfront Trail and the Green Belt Route. And so uh, what I wrote about for the blog post was this 50-kilometer adventure, really my first long specific trip on an e-bike. And I have to say, it's the first time I've ever enjoyed climbing a hill. There's uh, multiple rolling hills along this route. And was really wonderful to be able to just crank up the e-assist and keep going. I'd also say I, I enjoyed, uh, you know, not worrying about not being able to keep up. Um, I did the trip with my husband and, you know, sometimes when we're out riding, he Go, can go a lot faster for a lot longer than me. And, you know, with him, with any other group, I'm not really a, a fast person on a bike. And I'm usually more in the three to five kilometer trip range. So, you know, I sometimes struggle and worry about whether or not I'm going to be able to keep up when I plan some of these longer trips. And, you know, the e-bike just took that worry right away. And without having to expend too much extra effort, you know, we were able to just 
cycle joyfully together and have conversations and have a similar pace. And that really helped. And I also really appreciated having that extra push when you first get on the bike, especially if you're restarting on a hill or carrying cargo. You know, I had a pannier with, you know, a day's worth of food and and drinks in it uh, to keep us going. And sometimes that can put you off balance. But, you know, having that extra assist really helped you get going. So it was a great, you know, eye-opening opportunity to experience some of the uh, real joys and benefits of trying an e-bike. I was glad I was able to rent one, uh, you know, given the high cost of, you know, buying an e-bike. And uh, our community, like many communities, doesn't yet have an e-bike lending library like the one that, you know, Darnell runs in Toronto. So a great introduction there, and I, I hope to do it again soon. Fantastic. Yeah. And I, I love some of the, the the words that you use to describe that experience. It, it, it sounds like it brought the joy back to the, the ride, which is a big part of this. So let, let's stick with you for just a second, uh, Jamie. Uh, I know you said you're, you're doing a lot of work in the policy area. So let's talk a little bit about policy uh, specific to and related to electric assist bicycles. What are some of the issues that you are working on as well? as in a North American context, what other cities uh, need to be thinking about and are battling with. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the big reasons that, um, you know, officials have been pushed to look at updating e-bike rules and definitions here in Canada is because we currently have a very broad definition of power-assisted bicycles that encompasses everything from a pedal-assist e-bike right up to, you know, a low-speed electric motorcycle with pedals attached that, you know, is sometimes referred to as a moped. So when communities are talking about e-bikes, it's this really wide range of devices um, and it can, you know, create a lot of confusion as well as conflict about you know, where these different devices belong, their operating capacity, um, and how we plan for them. And so I really think that, you know, in Canada and in municipalities, you know, across the country, this has really led to a situation where a lot of the regulations and rules that are enacted um, around e-bikes feel more like they're about limiting where mopeds can go than really about understanding e-biking and trying to increase access to e-biking. And I think, you know, two really clear examples for me on that are, you know, one here in Ontario, we currently have a rule where both passengers and operators need to be 16 years of age to be on an e-bike. So that means if you are on an e-bike, you not only have to be 16, but your passenger does as well. So if you have a cargo e-bike, you can't put young children in it. So that was really a limiting factor. And I think it comes from, you know, policymakers trying to restrict young children from being you know, riding on the back of mopeds, but it had this unintended and really negative effect on people being able to have, you know, child seats and cargo bikes with electric assist. And, you know, as Darnell mentioned, you know, especially if you're carrying children and cargo, that e-assist can be so helpful. And so, you know, that's one example of the limitations. And I think the other is really about where e-bikes are permitted to ride. And, uh, you know, municipalities, um, here in Canada have the ability to limit where e-bikes can go. So you can't just assume, you know, you're on a bicycle and you can go to all the same places. And again, a lot of these policies are really more about trying to keep 
uh, like larger mopeds off of trails and shared use pathways, which can lead to, you know, blanket bans on e-bikes. And uh, if, you, if you'll permit, I'll just share one more story from my e-bike adventure that kind of ties into all of this. Technically, one of the trails that I rode my e-bike on, that was actually not permitted. So e-bikes are banned on all trails that are managed by the conservation authority. And I think that's in an effort to keep like, you know, scooters and mopeds off, but they've also limited e-bikes. And so if you go on the city of Hamilton's website, there's no information about e-bikes. If you go on the Hamilton Police's website, they direct you to the provincial website. You have to actually go specifically to the Conservation Authority's website and to their specific rules page to see that e-bikes are banned. And you have to know that that trail is managed by the Conservation Authority. And so there's all of these layers of confusion that are leading to just, you know, in addition to the infrastructure barriers, I think, you know, the confusion about where you're allowed to be is a real barrier. And I think it's, you know, a lot of unnecessary rules that why shouldn't e-bikes be allowed to be on shared use paths and trails? And that's really becoming a more prominent issue in our community and on council, especially most recently as seniors uh, push to be able to ride e-bikes on the trails. They're, people are realizing that they're actually banned and wanting to change that. So I think those are some of the real barriers that decision makers are trying to address here in Canada. When we return after this quick break, Darnell and Jamie discuss some of the practical steps that need to be taken to get more people riding more often and expand the reach of electric assist bikes and cargo bikes. But first, I have a very brief request of you. Please consider helping me grow the Active Towns podcast audience and our movement to create more activity-promoting places by telling a friend or two. Thank you. Okay, let's get back up to speed in our discussion with Jamie and Darnell. Darnell, I'm going to kick it back to you because ultimately your story really is talking about the, the fact that you got pushback from the city in terms of, gosh, this doesn't feel safe. Are you really encouraging people to, to get out and ride? Our built environment it just doesn't feel safe. So how do we get to that point? So I'll say there are three cornerstones. Um, one is dignity. The second is quality. And, and the third is practicality. So to start, to start with dignity, people want to be able to feel that the mobility mode that they're on is something that is socially acceptable to themselves as well as their neighbors, as well as something that, you know, allows them to carry themselves with a certain amount of, of pride and, and reality. And what I've found, you know, is that you, you frankly, especially if you're living in the suburbs, you don't get that with a regular two-wheeled bike. Because people see that and they say, okay, um, just on the practical level, I can't use this for much because they can't. But secondarily, um, you know, because it's really identified with a certain type of reality, which is to say, you know, it's, for example, it's either a kid's toy or something for a cyclist. And you know, as as a core as a core challenge, that doesn't really offer um, dignified mobility for a lot of suburban people. Now, where an e cargo bike or e, e assist vehicle 
generally changes that equation. You know, it's funny, over the last couple of months, I've parked some of the cargo cycles in our library on purpose, right next to Harley Davidson's and Hummer's. And I've had the owners of those vehicles go, nice bike, man. And it's, it's really transformational when they look at you, they give you the one up and down, and then they smile approvingly. And that really gives you, you know, gives you a sense. It made me feel good. And it, it really just pressed home the idea that, you know, people get it fundamentally. They look at this and say, okay, this makes sense. Now, just in terms of quality specifically, um, you know, the reality is we're not in the habit across North America of building quality infrastructure in our suburbs, especially our industrial suburbs. Maybe your more affluent ones, perhaps. Um, you know, people, we tend to think about, you know, activating the trails. Well, activating the trails as, as a concept real, really only works well for suburban people who have the time to ride on trails, for example. Um, especially if you're working and living within an industrial suburb, you probably unless your trail happens to connect you directly to, you know, the service place or the factory that you're working in, which is possible, but somewhat unlikely, then you're not likely going to have to want to use that trail, for example. Especially within a suburban space, most of the places that you will need to go are along arterial roads, not, you know, not trails of some kind. But building that quality out there is one of the reasons why I would like to build a conservancy because it will allow us to manage and run and raise funds and specifically give a certain level of care and dignity to the space that has not been done so far. In terms of, in terms of practicality, you know, having access to a mobility, an electric mobility device allows people to have a real ability to conduct their daily business in a way that's comfortable for them. And fundamentally, it's the, what we, the way we speak about it is the idea of a mobility toolbox, where what you want to do, you know, similar, similarly to how you don't want to use a hammer to solve every problem, you want to be able to give people access to the right mobility cycles for their, for their current needs running a business, having their kids, running their goods, you know, how do you make it possible for people to do what they need to do when they need to do it? Fantastic. Great thoughts. Okay, Jamie, you went through this experience. You got out there and uh, you did the long 50 kilometer ride and what changed? So, so what epiphanies sort of bubbled up out of that, that now apply to the work that you're, you're, trying to do and would like to do in the future in, in terms of policy? I think, you know, like so many things, being able to experience being on an e-bike firsthand really um, highlighted both the big opportunities that exist for e-bikes as well as the barriers that are uh, still remaining. And, you know, I think there are some 
legislative changes that we can certainly make, which I talked about around, you know, defining e-bikes and regulating where they can go. But there's also, you know, these larger barriers around, you know, a lack of safe spaces to ride. Um, I think also when we think of, um, you know, electric bikes, um, secure bike parking and the ability to know that, especially if your device is, you know, two, three, thousand dollars you need to know that you have a safe space to leave it which is something that's often lacking you know so it kind of does this thing of, of highlighting so many opportunities for cycling and and new avenues into cycling for people as darnell has been talking about um, but it you know it, it doesn't address a lot of the other existing concerns so it kind of reiterates the work that a lot of you know municipalities need to do to become more welcoming to cycling over Overall, because, you know, getting on an e-bike will address some barriers, you know, it can address hills, it can address distance, it can address concerns about keeping up with people, um, you know, but at the end of the day, if there's no safe space to ride, are we really going to, are we really opening up cycling uh, without creating those spaces? And, and you know, we're not. And I think, you know, a couple of, one thing that has come up a couple of times is, uh, you know, about being able to access e-bikes and, you know, another big thing that's got me thinking about, you know, this is such a great tool. Um, but they're, they're very expensive. I think, you know, in, in Canada, the, the average price of a starting e-bike is about $2,500. Um, and you know, when we talk about e-bikes being expensive, sometimes the first reaction is that, well, they're less expensive than a car, which is, is not false, but I think, you know, the number of people who are looking to make that decision between a car versus an e-bike is quite low. And we have to see the cost of an e-bike as something that really is a barrier. I've been really interested to see some of the rebates that have been rolled out um, in jurisdictions around the world um, to, you know, cover the purchase price of some e-bikes. And, uh, you know, this is another piece that I feel another opportunity that may e-bikes are pushing forward is getting this idea of, of purchase rebates into the conversation in the same way that it has been part of the conversation around subsidizing the purchase of electric cars. We're now talking about subsidizing the price of electric bikes because they're so expensive. And what I'd really like to see is for that to expand to bikes overall just kind of looking at the reasons that uh, rebates for electric vehicles came in, that's because people were trying to encourage you to buy an electric car instead of a conventional car. Well, with e-bikes, I don't think it's that like, oh, you should buy an e-bike over a conventional bike. It's like, get on any type of bike. So how can we expand this new idea, I think, of rebates for e-bikes and get it so that we're rebating conventional bikes as well or recumbent bikes and, you know, mobility trikes that are often more expensive and inaccessible for people, like, let's talk about how we can expand, you know, e-bikes have brought this new idea to the conversation, I think, and how can we move it beyond e-bikes to benefit all cycling? I love it. I love it. Let's <laughs> let's subsidize some active mobility here. Uh, we've been subsidizing motor vehicle travel for uh, the better part of uh, eight decades. Uh, final thoughts that you might have, uh, Darnell, from from your end. Anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that we uh, we address? Sure. And I guess specifically, you know, I'll, I'll speak about both the cost and the potential in that, as Jamie was mentioning about, you know, the importance, the importance of parking, that some, that some of the bikes she was referring to could be, you know, two, three thousand. Well, certainly, you know, when it comes to the higher end, more 
practical carbocycles for commercial uses or some of our new trishaws. Well, we're frequently looking in the 10 to 15,000 range as just, just as an example. Now, this is still wildly cheaper for us, both in the short term and the long term. One, because, you know, the maintenance is extremely low. The quality is, is really what you're paying for in terms of that. And the management of the program over the long term will be relatively low. But there's certainly things that we need to be doing in order to both increase the supply and access as well as allow people to be able to use these on a general basis. One, you know, we should be thinking about production here in North America. You know, we have a huge, of course, huge, we have a huge auto industry um, across North America. And I often laugh and when I think about it, the idea that imagine if you ran the auto industry like you do the bike industry. In that, instead of having, you know, rules that are workable across the entirety of North America, you are instead going to have every single town, every single province, every single state able to maybe come up with a set of rules. And the only rules that they do have say that a vehicle is, you know, between three, uh, between 3,000 pounds and some, some upper limit. And, you know, maybe it'll have an assist that goes up to 300 miles an hour. It's insane. People, people would say it's insane. You know, and we have, we have rules in this country for snowmobiles. We have rules for all sorts of other devices. It's important to have harmonized rules. And that really matters because what it's going to do is going to bring down the cost. When we start, when we start producing here, I guess the other piece worth mentioning you know, and it sort of goes back to what Jamie was saying about her experiences in Hamilton. When we legalize something and have regulatory management, as well as when we keep allowing ourselves to see these devices on the road as practical solutions, it normalizes them as solutions. It allows us to be able to, across you know, the, the scan of communities showcase these as dignified, practical options. And as long as we can do that, we have a way forward to, to move things. Because ultimately, you know, that's what everyone wants. And something that is not often well appreciated in the cycling discussion is if you happen to live downtown, you live within a relatively concise street grid. You don't really, quote unquote, need a bike because you can hop on transit. You, you know, worst comes to worst are close enough to wherever you need to reach, more than likely, that you can grab a cart and you can hand pull it to, you know, whatever block or two you likely have to go to. There is no such thing within the suburbs. It's multiple kilometers, and I know you're down in Austin, John, where, where the sun always shines, um, but up here, you know, we have at least a fair bit of cold and some snow, um, not as much as some people might argue, but certainly we do have it. And, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to tell mom with three kids that she has to walk, uh, you know, in, in, in the snows with her groceries while holding, while holding uh, their kids' hands. It, it doesn't make sense. So, you know, there, there are certainly solutions to this. 
but if we expect to see them adopted, we have to be able to expand the production, work on the regulations, and overall just showcase the options as dignified. Excellent. Jamie, anything that uh, we haven't addressed that you'd like to share? Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that really we've kind of, you know, talked around the idea of, you know, sharing spaces and sharing pathways. And that's often, you know, when I talk to especially staff at municipalities, that's the number one question they have is, you know, should we allow e-bikes and people walking to share the space? Um, And so, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, the the crux of that question is that we're not providing enough space for people who walk or for people who bike and asking them to oftentimes cram into an you know a narrow insufficient path that yes creates and increases the opportunities for conflict because there's so little space so ultimately we need to be working together to create more space for everyone who's moving you know walking or wheeling um, but I think you know the other piece that's at the heart of that question is as you mentioned the speed differential. And one of the things that really popped out to me when I was, you know, looking at the e-bike research is that, you know, just because e-bikes can go faster and can go up to 25 kilometers an hour or 32 kilometers an hour, depending on where you are in the bike, doesn't mean that they will. And there's multiple studies from both North America and in Europe that show that the average speed of an e-bike is one to four kilometers faster than a conventional bike. And so this idea that, you know, you know, banning e-bikes entirely because they're going to be moving too fast just doesn't ring true because, you know, many people on e-bikes are not moving at top speed. And, uh, you know, another example, a survey of North American bike share users showed that only 30% of people used full power most of the time. So, you know, it's seeing them as this mobility tool, as a mobility option, and that, you know, we, we shouldn't necessarily automatically be scared of the speed question, because just because you're on an e-bike doesn't mean you're going faster. And I can personally attest to that, because as I mentioned in my piece, we were passed by four to five other cycling groups of people because, you know, we weren't going at top speed. We were just going at the speed that made it comfortable and consistent to be riding the 50K. And so, you know, that was just something that I think I, I learned very recently through doing the research, but I know it's a really top question amongst decision makers is this whole speed thing. And so I'd, I'd hope that we can be less afraid of it and ultimately build the safe and adequate spaces that we need for more people to be biking and walking. Yes, go ahead, Darnell. Do you mind if I share just two things? One is specifically regarding to what Jamie was saying about making more space for everyone. From a city municipal perspective and from a a transport department perspective, part of the reason why the psychopaths are are the whiffs that they are is that they do not project that many people will use them. They only see them within a recreational standpoint. Um, in fact, many road projects, when they put in psychopaths, do it as a regulatory requirement. They don't do it because they project anything to be moving on that pathway. And part of what we're trying to do with the cargo cycle is showcase what is possible. Because one of the, one of the mentalities that exists around a road is that a road is equal. And that mentality exists because, in theory, everyone can have it, everyone can use it, all the goods 
from you know personal goods to commercial goods, they can move on a road. And what we're trying to do is showcase you know that the bike lane is not the sole purview of a certain type of person who enjoys a certain type of exercise, but is in fact a simply different type of road where you have lower speed devices, yes, but it's still serving the same function as the road by being able to move goods, by being able to move people, um, which is a really, you know, a really huge equalizer that makes investments in in this. It's, it reframes them for one, but also puts them in the same frame that a road has. So that was, I guess that was point number one. Um, the second point was just around cost, and I have no idea where you're going to use this, but I think it's worth saying just as point of point of discussion. The average city bus is about a million dollars over the course of its, you know, purchase and lifespan and operation, and we're not mentioning the cost of, you know, the salaries needed to keep that bus in operation. However, for a million dollars, I could easily buy somewhere in the vicinity of 125 cargo cycles. Now, if like any most transportation options that each cargo cycle was going to be uh, unused 95% of the time, then think of it in that I could have small cargo bike shares of 15 to 20 bikes each in apartment buildings, which have, you know, 150 units. And what you end up with is people are able to actually use this to get around as a practical model um, efficiently within their local community. So that could certainly be an option for communities and suburbs. And it would frankly offer um, local mobility at a cheaper and more practical cost for a lot of different people. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. So our final question for both of you is, is the following. There, there may be listeners out there that are inspired by our discussions and interested in, in, you know, trying to make a difference within their communities or expand their possibilities. What advice would you have for them? Darnell, I'm going to start with you. Definitely perseverance, but also plan in that you know, when you are trying to make systemic changes, it's very important to realize, one, that these systemic changes are going to take time. They're going to require you, you know, building a diverse coalition. And really, at some point, you have to make a decision. Do you prefer to be successful or do you prefer to sound right? And ultimately, um, part of what any systemic change in any process of, of, of change really requires is you being able to be a facilitator, bringing people from different worldviews together, allowing them to apply the information that they know is true outside of you know, a divisive atmosphere and then pulling people together around a reasonable plan that doesn't ask them, you know, do you believe in this or that? Instead, it said, we know you live here. We know this is your community. Um, is this the change that you want to see? And unite people around that. 
Fantastic. So Jamie, same question for the listeners who may be inspired by our discussions in this episode and would like to make a difference in their communities. What advice would you have for them? Thank you. I think, uh, you know, first of all, um, you know, I think Darnell highlights some really important points, especially about the long term nature of, you know, making change and advocacy. I uh, always encourage people to find ways to get their elected officials and public servants out on bicycles to actually experience what it's like to cycle in the community. If this can be done with members of the community, um, you know, to share their their lived experiences directly with these officials, that can be so beneficial. And, uh, you know, I know that not everyone can get out on a bike to experience their community. So we've also seen people, you know, uh, do walk arounds or host you know, coffee meetings outside near a trail or near a bike lane just to observe what's happening. So there's lots of different ways, but just really, you know, getting decision makers out on bikes, out on foot, out in the community can be such a big benefit. And I would say, you know, after my direct experience with e-biking, I'd say if at all possible, and if there's the interest to do it, getting people out on e-bikes as well uh, could be a really beneficial approach. I love it. Yes. Get people out on the the e-bikes and the cargo bikes to see what it's like. Jamie Darnell, thank you so very much for uh, chatting with me today uh, and joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Thank you so much for inviting us, John. This is such a great way to start the day. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you also very much for tuning in to this episode of the Active Towns podcast. I certainly enjoyed this opportunity to chat with Jamie and Darnell about e-bikes, cargo bikes, and the policies governing them. And I hope you found this episode to be interesting, educational, and entertaining. I've included links to the articles and organizations mentioned, so be sure to check those out in the show notes, as well as some photos that Jamie and Darnell provided on the episode's landing page at activetowns.org. A couple of quick reminders before we part ways. Please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any suggested topics or guests, questions, or if you happen to have any leads on potential podcast sponsors. Seriously, don't be shy. I connected with Jamie because of a listener's suggestion, and she recommended we include Darnell in the discussion. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. And as a final reminder, one last appeal for your support please spread the word about Active Towns. And if you're in a position to do so, please make a financial contribution to Active Towns so I can keep bringing you this content. Doing so is easy. Just go to activetowns.org and click on the blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. Thank you. Well, that's all for our first episode in season two. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.